0: So Money, episode 1562, a semi-conventional approach to career success. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I,
1: I think it's those situations where you kind of get put in a moment where you have to make a choice of okay, what am I going to do next? Is this a time where I'm just going to fall back on the things that I already know? Like I could have gone back to um, teaching, uh, but I decided. I think I want to keep doing other things where I can make a little bit more money um, and, you know, still have a really positive impact on a lot of people.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnush Tarabi. Welcome to the back to school season. We are back at it here in Montclair, New Jersey, although a half day for us because it is scorching hot. The school district has announced that kids have to leave school early today and there's no aftercare. There you go. If anyone doubts the risks of climate change, we are living it. It is officially 30 days until A Healthy State of Panic comes out. I'm so excited. I kind of don't know what else to do at this point. I've done so much to get this book launched. I will say, though, that I am working hard to put together a New York City launch event. Uh, it's happening on October 2nd in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. If you are in or around the area, I would love to see you. It is a ticketed event and you can learn more about it at a healthystateofpanic.com. We are almost sold out. So if you are interested, I would suggest you get your ticket today or very, very soon. All right, today we're talking about the benefits of switching jobs and having a sort of semi-conventional career. Our guest is April Locar. She is the founder of a company called Semi-Conventional, where she helps entrepreneurs amplify their expertise with scalable offers. So if you are in the thought leadership space, in a service-oriented business, and you want to build something with ROI in the digital space, this is where April helps her clients. And she herself comes to this with a lot of sort of semi-conventional and unconventional experience and style, finding her own unique way to live life and, and get things done. She and I talk about taking risks in your career, how to decide what to do next, and measuring success in the right ways so that you don't set yourself up for failure. I've done this many times. Here is April Lokar. April Lokar, welcome to So Money. It's nice to hang out.
1: Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You and I have been spending a little bit of time together this summer. You're one of the few uh, women I'm coaching in my Farnoosh Behind the Scenes program where we're working with some incredible women entrepreneurs across all sorts of industries and services and products. And I wanted to learn more about you and also introduce you to our audience. I think you could help a lot of women in our audience as they are trying to figure out maybe what their next offering is going to be. Be online for those of us who are in the service industry of the thought leadership industry. I consider myself in that in that camp, so I'll be also taking some notes. But you run a company, April, called Semi-Conventional, which I love that name. So maybe we could just start there. Like, how did that name co- come to be? <laughs> What's the story? Let's go back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, semi-conventional um, is sort of a term that kind of just hit me one day when thinking about how I've gone through my career, how my husband and I um, handle our family and responsibilities and things of that nature. Um, We sort of just do things a little bit different, even though we look pretty stereotypical from the outside. Um, And so my career has kind of been the same where, you know, I had this corporate career and was doing all the things, but in each and every role that I've had... I've sort of found a way to do things kind of my own way and uh, kind of buck tradition a little bit.
0: Well, let's get into that. I've, that's awesome. Tell me about yeah. like behind the scenes, what the semi-conventionalism <laughs> looks like in your family. And then we can go into your business. I think we're always looking for new ways to do things. <laughs> that yeah. isn't Because the convention <laughs> can be very restricting and limiting for so many of us.
1: Yeah, it can. Um, I think of it in in a lot of ways where we think about Traditional gender roles, and you know, husband is working, and wife is maybe also working, but also dealing with all the kid things, and um, and we kind of just don't do things that way. <laughs> so, um, you know, my husband grew up in a a house filled with, you know, females. So he actually learned to do his own laundry before I did. Um, And so how that's translated into our family is, you know, he's kind of the one doing a lot of the kid things. He, after COVID now kind of cooks all the time and he's, you know, mostly doing laundry and dishes and stuff like that, but he also is a basketball coach. And so when the season comes around, he's really busy with that. So we really kind of tag team all of the things when it comes to our family life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the primary breadwinner. So um, thanks for your book for because that You're was welcome. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, I think working through all of those things that come along with it. Um, and it's, it's not just between the two of us, but obviously your families and the community that we're in. A lot of people are very traditional in the, their gender norms in their families. And so, you know, we'll, we'll have to kind of poke a little, you know, comment in there when we hear people joking about like, oh yeah, my wife will go do the laundry or, you know, things like that. Mm. So it's, it's a constant back and forth with the the people that we interact with to say, hey, not everybody's like that. And hey, there's another way. And, you know, it's really not about being 50-50, but it's about being 100-100. Right,
0: right. There's a book I read called the 80, I think it's called eighty eighty 80 or something like that, where right. essentially, to your point, where, <clears throat> you know, this uh, pursuit of equality in your marriage when it comes to domestic responsibilities is kind of a loser's game. I mean, you yes. can't get to 50-50, but if you can both commit to over delivering in whatever you're doing, being able to also anticipate your partner and their their needs. I know that like, we're not all yeah. mind readers, but sometimes um, like a quick example, it was a, actually a couple guests that was on my show and they wrote a book about, you know, the I think it's called the 80-80 or the 80, I don't know. I'm totally, I'm, I'm messing up the title, but <laughs> a great book. I'll put the link in the show notes. But essentially, if you notice your partner's having like a slow morning being like, okay, how can I make their life easier today? And what are the things that I can take off their plate? Or how can I go the extra mile with already what I am doing to make the day better? Did you and your partner come to a head over this and realize maybe you were doing things conventionally and it wasn't working? Like, was there a, a change that resulted in how you are designing your life today? Or was it always this assumption from the beginning? And I know you said your husband grew up with women. He was already ahead of things, maybe ahead of the culture, yeah. <laughs> ahead of the gender role, expectation, drama. Uh, but what was what was the journey for the two of you to get into this point? Um,
1: yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't think there was like one big blow up moment or anything like that. Um, but through kind of my career moves, um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of, um, experiences and, uh, there, there was one job that I took, it was in downtown LA and our kids were pretty young. I think they were like two and five, something like that. And it just, it just sucked. It, it, it was terrible having to like commute that far and then come home and we were all miserable. And so I remember in that moment that it, it definitely came to a bit of a head where it's like, wait, okay, you're not even around. Like what's going on? How long can we sustain this? Um, so 30 days into that job, I, went and told them, um, I'm not coming back. So you can just mail me a check. Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> It just was not, not a good situation. Mm-hmm. So, so some situations like that where, you know, there's maybe a moment or two, um, and you just kind of have to have that conversation of, well, what's, what's going to work for us and what do I want this to look like? Um, and you know, not only having that conversation at home, but at work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's transition to work and bring your semi-conventional wisdom to the work and to our careers. You have talked about in previous forums how, for you, you know, switching jobs, while that can be a f- sort of a scary thing to do, you just gave an example of like after thirty days, calling. Yeah. It, um, <laughs> How you have approached your career in this semi-conventional way that's had many benefits.
1: Yeah, I actually never thought I would um, be someone that had multiple jobs. I thought I would start a career and I would stick with it. And that was that. Um, I went to school to be a teacher. And so I thought I would be teaching, you know, somewhere in an elementary school, um, but graduated during the last recession and quickly had to pivot into something else that um, made sense for me. And so I found corporate training. And after working, you know, six years for that company, honestly, I'd probably still be there today if they didn't lay me off. Um, and that was super, super scary. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's those situations where you kind of get put in a moment where you have to make a choice of, okay, what am I going to do next? Is this a time where I'm just going to fall back on the things that I already know? Like I could have gone back to, um, teaching, uh, but I decided I think I want to keep doing other things where I can make a little bit more money um, and you know still have a really positive impact on a lot of people. Um and so I've changed jobs definitely more times than I thought I would in my career. Um, and for a while it was chasing a larger paycheck. But then I realized it was really more about finding the culture that worked for me. So through a couple of those moves, really understanding what type of job works for me. Um, if I had to clock in to like a nine to five, um, that would, I'd get fired immediately. (laughs) That just wouldn't work for, for how I like to work. Um, but also the type of culture that you're working in, uh, you know, some people fit more the Google culture, some people fit more the traditional, you know, hierarchy in a company, um, and just really figuring out what works for you and what you like to work in. I think making some career moves really, really helps to figure that out because otherwise you just don't know.
0: And you're not growing. And a, yeah. a couple of questions come to mind as you're speaking. First is you talk about having a, a background in education, approaching your career, thinking I'm going to become a teacher, realizing like that's actually not what you want to do. But I think also not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like you have today, a career where you are teaching people. And so I think there is a lesson there, which is that especially for the younger adults who may have not studied what they thought was their passion or what they think is an applicable degree, but there's always a way to parlay, as I say, you know, where you can leverage what you're doing into something new. It doesn't have to look like it. It doesn't even have to be the same title or, but you are taking with you pieces of that, of that previous job, that previous uh, education that you had. So the question here is how did you parlay and I know you said you were more focused on culture, but uh, it, it it is true that you took a lot of your teaching experience into your next opportunity too how did you how did you basically do that and convince an employer to hire you maybe in a, in a new industry or a new corner of the career space that wasn't the traditional teaching job?
1: Yeah, I think um, my my first sort of career job, um, it was an almost immediate pivot right from education. I would like substitute teaching because I couldn't find a, a full time position and um, getting into it was a, a nonprofit So also pays really, really well, um, just like teaching (laughs) and and being able to just kind of, you know, talk with them about what my skills were. Um, The person that was leaving the role, uh, I actually got to talk to them first to understand what was the role and what were they looking for? And I said, oh, well, I can teach your employees. I already know how to teach. Uh, It's just a matter of, you know, teaching Safety and you know the company culture and all of that sort of stuff instead of teaching you know arithmetic um, and so so kind of getting in there was was not as hard as I would have thought um, because I was really able to just talk about hey these are things I know how to do in one of my other jobs after I got laid off at that one um, I remember interviewing with the hiring manager and he told me. My only concern is our industry is so different uh, because it was from a nonprofit to a, you know, custom cabinet manufacturer. So it's a very different industry. Um, And I something just came over me and I said, I can learn the industry. That's not a problem. And and I think that was one of those first moments where I'm like, hold on this. This part's not an issue. And I got that job. And that actually was um, a, a manager that still is kind of a mentor for me today he really helped push me into seeing, hey, you have a lot of marketable skills. And I think a lot of us really need that outside perspective because when you're in it, you don't always realize all of the things that you've become really good at um, Mm. and how they can be marketable.
0: Right, right. And this is where we can now transition to how you're helping clients today. You help primarily... Women who are perhaps they would describe themselves as thought leaders. They work in service-oriented businesses, solopreneurs who want to figure out how to maybe leverage their best assets and skills and their offerings in the most sensible way online. I know for me this was a challenge and continues to be, and you know, a challenge slash opportunity where it's like, what's going to be the next? <laughs> Sort of like Farnouche's next digital offering. You know, the podcast is doing great, but I am looking, you know, at 2024 going, maybe I should finally figure out a subscription model or a coaching, digital coaching model. And I'm experimenting with some of that right now. How do you ultimately help your women clients? Like someone comes to you and they're like, April, I would love to, I don't know what I'd love to do, maybe a workshop, maybe it is a a course, but like, how do you figure out someone's how to chart someone's path online?
1: Yeah the the one thing about that is I've realized my skill set is being able to see that big picture, um, and so that was a a big light bulb moment for me to be able to say, wait, I can see all of these pieces, and it looks so logical. But when you're in it again, it's so hard to see what could. I do? What could I do with all of these pieces that I have? And so, with clients that I'm working with right now, most of them already have some level of a business. Uh, they're either a thought leader or they have their own business, but a lot of times they're spending a lot of one on one time coaching um, or they're, you know, being the ones actually delivering the service. Uh, and so, they need something that's a little more scalable, right? I think we're all tired of having too many meetings on our calendar. And so being able to remove some of that and still deliver what you're doing in a way that feels aligned, that gives your clients what they need. Um, So a big part of my process is figuring out, okay, what are you already doing? And what part of that works? And then we look at um, a lot of the things I've learned through my corporate career in, you know, corporate training is needs analysis, right? And okay, who's your audience right now? And what do they need from you? And what are other things that they could also need uh, based on what you're doing in the moment? And so we've really spent a lot of time on that introductory piece. And, you know, I always think of it like um, the analogy, you know, measure twice, cut once, if you're spending more time on that planning piece, the rest of it's going to flow and the rest of it's going to be a lot simpler. So we spend some time kind of brainstorming and, um, you know, in a lot of ways it's, it's sort of therapeutic because my clients will just be talking about all of the things that they do and things they've tried and stuff that they have thought about doing. Um, you know, I mean, even like you mentioned, you know, subscription or something like that. Um, that's something that, one of my clients, we are putting together a course, which will kind of pair up with her podcast. But in talking about the course, it was sort of like, well, I kind of want them to have more support than just the course. So she's also standing up a membership alongside that. Um, And so it's, you know, these, these bits and pieces of things where I think sometimes it's hard for us to decide we want to try something uh, because it's kind of scary. But if you have that kind of, unbiased external party looking at all of your stuff saying, yeah, that sounds great. Why don't you try it? Uh, it? It just really helps to kind of give some confidence around testing out something new that you've probably already thought about doing, um, mm. but just need a little bit of strategy around. And, and again, making sure that you have an audience for it. Because um, I think that's where a, a lot of the things in online business, right? They, they sort of fail because we didn't, meet the needs of somebody first. Right.
0: And sometimes that's as simple as just reverse engineering that. Like don't sit yes. in a dark room trying to think what your audience needs. <laughs> ask yes. them, uh, just yes. ask them. And, and so what's your method besides what I just said, which is just ask them, but like, what's your methodology for identifying that piece, which sounds like a big mistake that a lot of a lot of first timers make those first time entrepreneurs, digital entrepreneurs make is like assuming that they're going to create this thing and they'll just, people will just be attracted to it. But there was a simpler way to figure it out perhaps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, asking people is, is the most uh, direct and effective way to figure out, Hey, what do they need from you? Um, but also not everybody knows what they need, right? They know what they want. Um, so, so we kind of have to balance that, What do they want versus what's the actual need behind it? Um, And so asking people is a great way to start. The other thing that we do is we spend some time thinking through what are questions that you get asked often and how are you answering those questions? And was that answer enough for what they needed? Are they coming back to you and asking more questions? So we kind of plot out honestly, honestly it's almost like FAQs, right? And, and okay, what are the FAQs that um, you could put on your website and how can we turn that into something um, that's easier for people to consume, right? Because most of us don't sit on a website reading FAQs. Sometimes we do, but <laughs> uh, that, that's that's not going to help us to take action, right? Most yeah. of the time. So figuring out those questions that people come to you with. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And, and another part of that is, A lot of times we don't always see what we're really good at, right? And being able to ask the people around you, right? Asking your colleagues, asking, um, you know, your three best friends. I always tell people, text your three best friends right now and ask them, what am I good at? And just see what they say. Um, Because sometimes it's those, those little nuggets of information that they're probably not going to give you something that's like a million dollar business idea, But what's inside of what they tell you um, will probably give you some clarity on what's your real area of expertise and what do people want to come to you for? Um, So we kind of, you know, pull all of that together and say, okay, now what do you want to deliver and what do the people need from it?
0: Right. As you're speaking, I'm reminded of uh, when Steve Jobs was in the development process for the iPhone. Okay, nobody's sitting around going, I wish I had an iPhone. No, we didn't even right. know was possible, but he was the visionary, but he did know what we wanted, which was, yeah. you know, accessibility, to be able to have the convenience of communicating and doing work and personal, maybe on a single device, watching, consuming. Imagine a world where all these wants actually exist in this asset that I can provide. It won't just be a nice to have, it'll be a must have at some point. Like everyone needs a smartphone, I think, in order to sort of feel like they're a functioning adult in a, (laughs) at least in these here fine United States. Um, (laughs) And also as you're speaking, I'm reminded of my own journey as I was- maybe this was now, now I would say 10 years ago, I had built a career as a personal finance expert, which is making money from what I do. I do books, I do lectures, I do Mm -hmm. uh, media, and I, I did some television work. But what I was realizing that a lot of people wanted to know about me was how did you build your kind of business essentially right your your audience your multi-platform business where you're working on all these different content things and ultimately a thought leader but across all these platforms and i didn't think there was a strategy there i was like well i just i'm a curious person i i mm-hmm. really enjoy what i do i'm i'm i look at things as experiments i don't the failure, the idea of failure doesn't hold me back. If something doesn't work out, there's still lessons to take with me into the next thing. Mm-hmm. But I did a keynote at an event one day about how I did this really, like were there strategies? And there certainly were, you know, and for me, it started with a book uh, where that I leveraged that turned me into a, an expert that then I leveraged for other opportunities. And mm-hmm. at the end of that, someone said to me, can you work with me one-on-one? Like I want to learn your strategies. And essentially they wanted to shortcut it, right? Because I had made mistakes. I had done things that right. I did differently. And so yeah, I thought, okay, that's one person. I wonder if there's more. And then I just kind of went for it. I Within a year, I had developed a workshop that was called Book to Brand and teaching what I knew best, which was how to, if you're interested in writing books for the purposes of building an authority oriented business where you're an expert in whatever you're an expert in, I'm in personal finance, but you could be health, you could be chef, you know, a chef, you could be mental health. So that was the first time I started making money, not just from what I do, but from what I know. And that was a game changer. And that's my Mm -hmm. advice to everybody. My contribution to this conversation is if you're already making money doing something, thinking about how you got there is the how and maybe the the knowledge part of it that you're not leveraging. And that's essentially what you do. It's like extracting the knowledge that we have to turn Mm -hmm. that into a business. All right, question for you now. How do you avoid FOMO in your pursuit of what the next right thing should be for you because again, in my industry courses are the thing um, where if you don't have a digital course, are you really an expert in personal finance you know and so that has for me been a bit of a has been I'm over it now but for a while it was a little bit of like a <laughs> bummer because that wasn't what sparked joy for me as a teacher like I don't want to be doing that not so much because I don't like teaching because I don't like the marketing. I don't want to create funnels and all that. It's like mm-hmm. I'm already asleep. So, um, nevertheless, that created some anxiety in me and some, you know, wondering like, well, you know, maybe I should just do it. I should just suck it up and do it. So, I'm sure right, you come right. across. I'm sure you run up against this with your clients where they come to you like, everybody else is doing this. I feel like I should just do that. How do you figure out what's right for you?
1: Yeah, that's where we spend time figuring out what they enjoy doing because like you said if if for you a course doesn't light you up it's not exciting we look at why first of all if that's something that your audience really wants then we find a way to do something that's similar but maybe not the same so maybe it's not oh let's make you a course maybe it's hey let's make a cohort experience where yeah you have a little bit of material but you still get to meet with them, you know, once a month or something like that. Um, that's actually something I'm building out for uh, somebody else right now who's a, a personal stylist. Um, and, you know, she wanted something where she can deliver it to a wider audience, but she still wanted to have that that personal touch mm-hmm. um, because she's like, I don't want to just do a course because then they're just taking in this information. Most of us don't finish courses that we buy anyways. You know, it's like books where maybe we read all of it. Maybe we take something away and then we put it down. Um, And I feel like a lot of courses that happens as well. So, um, so you're totally right where you have to find that thing that really makes sense for you and what's your personality. Um, It's kind of like figuring out what type of company you want to work for, right? Where it's, what's the culture? What's, what's the culture of me and what my offerings are and what I want to be delivering because if it doesn't feel aligned and easy and joyful for you to deliver, it's not going to work anyways, even if it's what your audience needs. So some of it is just having that confidence to say, you know, I just don't want to do this and that's all right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And sustainability is for me, at least a huge measure of whether or not something I believe, is successful for me. And Mm -hmm. that's not to say that some things I just do for the one-off experience and there are just some things that are just one and dones. But if I'm going to try to keep at this and feel like I'm really contributing in a consistent way, then I want a few things that are going to have longevity. and. I wonder for you and your clients, how do you measure success for them? Besides just maybe monetary success, you obviously want to make a profit, but what really are the metrics and what is maybe a mistake in that pursuit? Sometimes I think we inadvertently set set ourselves up for failure because our definition of success is not quite right.
1: That's... Such an interesting question. It's the, the I think, number one thing I've learned in my corporate career is how to define success from the start. Um, and I, I think that's something that a lot of us miss in many of the processes that we're doing on a day-to-day basis is we sort of go through something and we sort of Think, you know, oh yeah, this will be successful, but we don't really think through what does that mean and how do I know if this is successful? So, to your point, sometimes it's monetary. And, you know, let's say somebody says, hey, I just want something where I can make this amount of money to replace, you know, doing this many one on one services. And so, how do we get there? Um, and so we sort of work backwards on what type of model would work for them and what could they charge for it? Um, but the other measures of success are sometimes, do you have more space on your calendar? Are you able to uh, step away from your business? Are you able to hand this off to someone else? Maybe a virtual assistant can do some of the delivery of this, or you can hire someone else in your business to do the delivery. Um, so some of those measures of success are really out of the box i would say <laughs> and and like you said it's it's about being sustainable and making sure that it feels good for you um but that's definitely something that we s- start off with uh at the very beginning of the process is what do you want to get out of this um and if it is as simple as hey i want to make a course that way i can have some passive income um you know i ask them find 10 people that you know will buy this immediately because yes. if you don't have that it's not going to sell it, yeah. even those 10 people might not buy it, but that's okay. They at least, you know, have expressed that interest. And so, you know, you'll be able to market it. Um, but, but yeah, starting with that is such a big component. And again, we don't always do it. Um, but in, in business and wow. in, in my processes, I think it's a huge step that, that we have to cover to make sure it's sustainable for them.
0: hmm hmm And thank you for saying that an honorable... Metric of success is a cleared calendar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not busyness, because we can wear a busyness like a badge of honor. We've talked about that a lot on the show. Yes. And of course, um, I I raised my hand. I've certainly been in that camp. And now I love when I have a free calendar, a free week. I mean, part of me does, there's a little bit of anxiety, or I'm like, oh, I, how, can, how can this be? This must mean that like I'm not doing enough or. I'm going to pay for this in two weeks because I didn't maximize this time, but it comes with age, everybody, you know, I think life teaches you as you live it, that busyness is not, uh, it's not where it's at necessarily all the time. Yeah. there are going to be seasons yeah. in your life where you're busier than others, but, uh, the last two weeks of August, you know, you can take off, you can take it yeah. off. And like, no one's going to be emailing you. So no one's right. reachable. So.
1: Right. The other thing that I find uh, funny about that is we, we sort of lament how our kids constantly have, you know, things in front of them. And, you know, well, when we were kids, we played outside and, you know, we, we had that boredom time, right? We need to do that for ourselves. That's what the clear calendar really brings to us is being able to have kind of that boredom time. So you can think about creative ideas that maybe wouldn't have come to you when you were in back-to-back meetings.
0: Yeah. Appreciate you, April. Looking forward to... Uh, spending more time with you in the next few months, um, and as you said, you know, coming up with an idea where ten people immediately buy it—that was the Farnese BTS offering, where I right. just posted it. There was no funnel for that. There was no Facebook ad. It was just putting it up on my social media, uh, a couple emails, and got the best people. Not only ten immediate yeses, but like I consider you just—all these women are just fantastic. I mean, are you having fun? Like this is it's, such a great group.
1: It's such a fantastic group. Yes, I think everything that everyone's doing is so different, but yet you can find those commonalities of where we're all at. And <laughs> it, it's such a good group to to learn from each other, you know, learning from you and the, the experts that you're bringing to us as well. I, I think that part of it has been um, it's been so good to to get that community that we often miss uh, when we kind of go into business for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And I think we all really want it, especially after COVID. And uh, if there's an opportunity to leverage the internet, but still do something I think that feels analog (laughs) in some ways, I think is (laughs) for me at least what sparks joy. Uh, Thank you again, April. And tell us where we can learn more about you.
1: Um, yeah. So my website is semiconventional.com conventionalcom and uh, that's most of my handles. I'm typically more on Instagram um, because I'm an elder millennial. I, I appreciate you getting in the TikToks, but I just, I can't do it. So on Instagram, I'm uh, at semi.conventional.
0: Will do. Put that in the show notes. Have a great one. Thanks. You too thanks so much to April for joining us. Once again, if you'd like to join me for our New York City launch of A Healthy State of Panic, check out a for those tickets. I'll see you back here on Friday for a fresh episode of Ask Farnoosh. Until then, I hope your day is so money.